Hey everybody, welcome to episode 63 of Literary Disco, Tinkers. Today's episode in two parts will begin with a bookshelf revisit, the traditional segment in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelves to discuss. And then we will read the Pulitzer Prize winning novel, debut novel by Paul Harding, uh, Tinkers. It came out in 2009. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me as always are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hi, guys. Hey, Ryder. Hi. Welcome back we from vacation. You. Yeah. Yeah, how was the episode without me? I haven't listened to it yet. You oh, that's in fucked France, up. Yeah. Which we definitely knew. Yeah, we. I was 100% aware that you were in France. Where in yeah. France were you now that you're back and people can't stalk you? Yeah, I, I was all throughout. Provence, so all throughout the south of France, and then we went to Corsica, which is an island, which was the best part of the trip and the least planned. So if I ever go back, I'm gonna go spend more time in Corsica. It's, it's incredible. It's, I mean, it's a, I imagine it's a lot like the Greek islands um, or any of those Mediterranean islands, which I've never experienced before, which are so amazing because it's, you know, I grew up in Northern California with that kind of rugged coastline. Right. So you have like cliffs and hills and mountains very close by. But of course, in Nor- NorCal, it's freezing cold water, whereas in Corsica, it's beautiful, I, like 75 degree blue water. It's, I believe the term you're actually looking for in relationship to the water was hella cold. Hella cold. <laughs> it's hella freezing, bra. Hella freezing, bra. <laughs> hella freezing, bra. And full of great whites. Not great. Yeah, like where I grew up, Bodega Bay is like the great white breeding ground. So. <laughs> the beach was where you took a walk in a like down coat. You know, that's what the beach was for. It was beautiful, but it was where you took a walk with a down coat. Um, and so to be able to see that visually, but then have tropical warm water is without like because i'm not a huge tropics person you know my wife is she loves like costa rica and like you know and i i can appreciate that too but i really love mediterranean coastlines and to have warm water tropical water basically with that it's just amazing um that's what south of france is all about but uh, corsica in particular because it's less developed you know the actual south of france the riviera is not really my scene either. Saint Tropez, oh, you know, so much money and Saint yachts. Tropez, and yes. It's not my scene. Well, you know, but, um, you know what's great about this about this segment, though, actually, Ryder, is that if you've gotten anything wrong about the layout and geography of the south of France, um, what I've learned about our listeners is that they will uh, contact us to let us know when we have fucked up world geography. <laughs> Well, you know we're what? really horrible with geography. That Can we all admit us. that? That was like, embarrassing. That was an embarrassment. Well, I feel like we're still getting them notes about it. Like someone was just commenting that the whole Commonwealth discussion. Yes. Mostly what we're talking about, right? It's yes, whether Australia, that's... Canada, England. And by the way, timely, considering Scotland is about to vote to stay in. Right. 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 Like, and they're voting to separate themselves from the United Kingdom, I believe. Right. Sounds but they would still like be part of the Commonwealth. Done some studying after we got schooled by our listeners well and i think i think it's important that we maybe just make a blanket statement here that when the three of us discuss at any length um any aspect of world geography or the geopolitical status of such we don't know what we're talking about um and so we're totally fallible so we appreciate we appreciate being contacted to let us know when we're wrong um but trust that by the time the show has aired um, Julia has figured out her mistake. 
just like just like when I I don't remember if I ever told the listeners this, but after the Camu episode, I retook the test and got a hundred percent. Oh yeah, I you told everybody, but you were very proud of this. <laughs> I think you said that in the middle forward. of the recording. I yes. feel like you took a break yeah. to go take the test. Again. I hope I did. But I was the one who yes. answered the, that one, the first question, completely wrong because I said it took place in France, right. not realizing. Not realizing you'd soon be in France and would be able to tell. Did you did you have any existential thoughts while you were in France, though? I had a lot. I was reading, we've talked about this off the air, but I was reading the Knosgard, My Struggle, which um, I'm not sure if any of our, I'm sure our listeners have heard something about this. Why not just it's sit this... in a sidecar while you say that? I mean, you just, yeah. you sounded like Colonel Clink just now. My yeah. Struggle. So Get if our Hogan. listeners don't know about this, this is not my bookshelf revisit, although maybe it should be. Um, so there's there's a, a book that sort of swept Europe a couple years ago, or a series of books. It's a six-book autobiography by this Norwegian guy, and he's really intense. And it's basically the, the modern-day Proust. He, it's super detailed recollections of his childhood and, and his life in general. But it's six parts. I think the whole thing is 2,700 pages or something. And it's one of those things that, like, a friend of mine, a very literate friend, um, was reading and showed me the cover. And I was like, this is ridiculous. How could anybody dedicate so much time to writing this book, let alone reading it? Or reverse that. But then I started reading it, and I got, like, five pages in. I was like, oh, my God, I have to read this book. So I spent my time in France reading the first My Struggle Part 1. And I have to say, it was really brilliant and interesting. And if anybody wants to tweet me about it, if anybody has read it, any of our listeners, I'd love to talk about it. But um, So yeah. would you prefer that readers then tweet you with questions about that book versus saying... Ryder, can you see me? It's my birthday. Birthday spelled right. B-U-R-T-H. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. Or, Ryder, when are you going to be on Girl Meets World? Yes. Like, are you going to be on Girl Meets World? It's like, have, all it takes is a Google search, and you can get these answers. Yeah, let me Google, Google that for Google you. Search. Yes. Yeah. I, in fact, someone asked that on our, our tweet, or, or on our uh, feed the other day, and I, I did Google it for them and post the response. And it turns out you're going to be in a Cinemax show called Girl Meets World that's entirely different. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get cable, kids. Get cable. <laughs> Guys, the internet is also fallible. <laughs> so, uh, what, uh, what do you have to revisit there, Mr. Strong? Or did you well, want to just I use the one you just talked about? No, 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 because I'm done with the Knoskog, but uh, <laughs> for now. I, I want you guys to read it, though, because I am very curious. I, I know we had talked about doing a possible episode, and you guys were like, ugh, it's so done, because you've heard about it a lot, but um, it is a fascinating book, um, and I still am not sure whether I'm going to dive into the next edition. That's a question There's six. for later. There's six. six. And yeah. it, was, it took a long, I mean, it took my entire honeymoon to read the 400 pages that is the first one. Great honeymoon. Well, is, yeah, yeah. is, is his life so fascinating? It's all like winters in Norway, you know, <laughs> contemplating snow, the death of his father, and like, you know, yeah. yeah. So you read that, and you read that in Tinkers at the same time while on your honeymoon? You're lucky yeah. it wasn't your divorce moon. No, I brought Tinkers. I didn't actually end up reading it till I got back. But, Whenever um, Greg and I go on vacation, right. I bring a brutal true crime novel and then tell him about the horrific things that people have done to each other. 
That's what vacationing with yeah. me is like. Anyway, I kind of agree. Like, I usually like to tackle a big book, like a tough book on vacation. Yeah. But, you know, not not tough, but something that might not be a, a breezy read, mm-hmm. which kind of is counterintuitive. But it's like if I'm on vacation, it's my time where I can really I have no distractions, and it's like, oh, now's the time I can really dig into a book. As opposed to, I think a lot of people think of vacation as the time to read more frivolous, uh, meaningless, you know, or books that will move really fast. But I actually feel the opposite. Well, and if, I think if that's the case, and if people are going on vacation now, may I recommend Gangsterland by Todd Goldberg in bookstores now everywhere. Oh, oh yeah, we got to yes. talk about this. Sorry, writer. Get the plug out there. Yeah, no. sorry. Had to get that plug Todd out there. Todd had Definitely. a big book come out this week. Tell us all about it, Todd. Uh, I did. My book came, so by the time you guys listen to this, it'll have been two weeks, but my book came out this week, and uh, can I just, can I, can I say all the exciting things that have happened real quick? Of course. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're so proud so, of you. For those of you who don't know, this is like my thousandth book, but really only one of about four good ones. <laughs> Humility. <laughs> This is a um, book that counts. This is this is the book you should actually buy versus a lot of the previous ones. And so there are three magazines that review books before they come out. Uh, Publishers Weekly, Booklist, and Kirkus. And they basically set the taste trends, as it were, um, for the book market and determine if stores are going to order the book, if newspapers and other places are going to review the book, all that sort of good stuff. And each place will do something called a starred review. And that is a review that, you know, is, has a giant star on it. And they say, oh, this is a great book. You should go buy it. Up to uh, 2014, I had published 11 books <clears throat> prior and had never received a single star. Um, in fact, in some places, had re- received uh, black holes. <laughs> I was going to say, is there an anti-star? <laughs> I had been sucked into antimatter. We give this the red dwarf of death. <laughs> there is actually a photo of Jodie Foster in contact saying they should have sent a poet uh, next to some of the pictures. Um, <laughs> a wormhole. <laughs> the wormhole review. Yes. So this time, however, and that's not to say I haven't gotten good reviews. I, I actually have gotten very good reviews mostly for the last, I don't know, like eight years. So uh, this year, however, for Gangsterland, I received starred reviews in every single magazine uh before the book came out in booklist and kirkus and a publisher's weekly which um caused me to walk into a glass door when i was on vacation and give myself a black eye because i was reading it walked into a fucking door um yeah i fucked myself up i had a black eye and my knee was swollen thank god it didn't break oh god i this was in sedona at this beautiful place called the uh enchantment resort where actually Ryder, i know your your wife has been before yeah and there's an indoor pool and an outdoor pool. And I was walking towards the outdoor pool from the indoor pool. And I had just received this review and was looking out on my phone. And I'm just sort of in the clouds and I'm looking outside and boom, I walk into this glass, sliding glass door. And I'd been laying up at the pool so I didn't have a shirt on, oh. which for those of you who have seen me, that's a nice vision. Mm-hmm. And I left just an entire giant stain of Todd <laughs> on the sliding glass window. A Todd print? <laughs> Just a giant smear of my entire greased up body, and the Why people that were all saying like, this? "Because it's horrible and funny." And, book. <laughs> and you like to hear stories about when I hurt myself, Julia. Uh, I do like any story where anyone hurts themselves. Yeah. You were probably feeling more embarrassment than pain. Oh right God, now, I was right? so embarrassed, and I was yeah, I was. <laughs> I, that's I, just I, lame. I bounced <laughs> that off guy. the door. 
And all the people oh. that were sitting there were like, are you okay? Oh. And I'm like, I walked into that door. I walked into that door. As if You're lucky, man. Know. I knew a kid growing up, one of my best friends growing up, like practically severed his foot. Oh. When I, he walked through a glass door at a pool and uh, it wasn't a shatter, you know, it didn't mm-hmm. shatter. It just came down in sheets and like basically oh, sliced his foot off. It was a big deal. Yeah, it's super dangerous. Yeah, well, these are the dangers a, of being a famous author. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, this is a big like triple pane door. So, but, but then the next day when we were going back out there, we were walking through, and the manager of the the pool area was standing there next to the door cleaning it off, and she, and then she's like, "You gotta be careful. Someone walked into this yesterday." And I was like, "That was me. <laughs> I walked into it. I'm a boy. Oh, that guy. was your, that was your chance to say like, what yeah. an idiot. Jeez. Yeah. I, oh, I said that too." At any rate, you so have no game. So that that all happened some time ago uh, when I got when I first started to get these reviews. But then subsequently, um, I've gotten some very nice news in the Los Angeles Times, and uh, been doing a lot of interviews and all that stuff. And actually, tomorrow uh, I'm heading off on a book tour, so I'll be coming to cities near you. Um, by the time this airs, um, you can catch me again in LA. <laughs> um, but I'll be in LA uh, on uh, Saturday, the 13th of September, which is after this will air, and then I'll be in phoenix and las vegas and uh los angeles again in october and the bay area in october and uh, a bunch of other places along the way i'll be i'll be doing events from pretty much now until people stop inviting me places well that none of those are a city near me so my hope sort of was that the uh i thought maybe the twain house would be interested in the what kirkus reviews calls an instant classic so i didn't know if Okay, let's talk, the Twain House let's talk after this. Let's talk after this. Because I'm huge in I'm huge in Hartford, according to those people on House Hunters that sent me hate mail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, Ryder, what was your book that you were going to talk about? All right, yeah, let's uh, back to the subject at hand. Um, so, all right, I this is I I can't remember. I, I it was somebody on Twitter tweeted at our <clears throat> literary disco account, and I'm sorry, I cannot remember who it was. But they tweeted an article, um, which then I know, I'm pretty sure, Todd, you actually retweeted it or did something with it, too. So I'm sure you've read this book. But it was an interview with Nick Hornby about being a critic Mm -hmm. while also being a novelist. It was a cool little article. But at the end of the article, he listed, like, the Mm -hmm. 10 books that he had been surprised by or most impressed by as his time as a reviewer. And one of them I had never read, and I think I had heard about, but I had never read, was a sort of an essay more than a book uh, by Carl Wilson called Let's Talk About Love. Have you guys read this? No. Oh, it's insane. You have to read this. Let's Talk it's, About Love. So, Let's Talk About Love, and the subtitle is Why Other People Have Such Bad Taste. <laughs> so... The whole book is this guy, Carl Wilson, who's this, um, I, I didn't know him before this, but and I guess this is kind of his defining essay, but he was a music critic for years, and in his 40s, in 2007 or 2008, I guess, when this was originally written, he decided um, to go on a quest to uncover why people like Celine Dion, <laughs> and just... In, you know, it starts off as sort of this personal experiment, like, can I come to love Celine Dion? But then it ends up morphing into this incredible essay and journey into the question of taste itself. Why do we like what we like? Why do we hate what we hate? And why do we um, create identities around that? Um, you know, and he delves all the way back to, like, aesthetic theory 
and great philosophers. You know, he's quoting Kant and and how people and David Hume and how people in, in previous eras had defined taste and how clearly we can see through those definitions. But then it's very hard for us to see through our own definitions of taste and um, and shifting cultural landscape. And it ends up being it's one of the greatest essays. I, I tore through this book. It's it. it, it it's been published as a separate book now with act- with extra essays <clears throat> by a bunch of people, including Nick Hornby, actually. Oh, so this um, is a, one of those 33 and a third books. Is that- yeah, it was originally one of those 33 and a third books, which I didn't know what that was at all. So oh. this brought me to that series. But I guess series. that's a series of music essays. Or Yeah, yeah, it's right. great. Right. And so now it's been republished, I think, just this year as its own book. And I don't, I didn't really love any of the, I, did, I just flipped through the extra essays in the back. So I don't know if you need any of those. If you can get a, a hold of the original 33 and a third, that's probably enough. But the essay itself, Let's Talk About Love by Carl Wilson is fantastic. And it gets to a lot of the things that I think since doing this show, I've been thinking about, you know, because so much of the show is about taste and what we you know, how we define that and how we talk about good books versus bad books. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like we, you know, we have explicitly said from the beginning that our, that literary disco was, was trying to be something kind of between highbrow and lowbrow. And, you know, I have to say like, that was sort of a, an afterthought for us. I feel like we had the idea to do the show first and then it was like, well, what, what's different about our show or how do we define like the three of us or what we talk about? And that sort of became the shorthand explanation. And um, reading this book kind of brought that into even starker relief for me, like what that means. And, and I'm still not quite sure, but it was really great to, to read an examination of taste and very contemporary examination of taste because, you know, he talks about how, the dem- democratization of taste, um, you know, but how we've really fragmented and splintered, you know, even into the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a much clearer sense of what was popular and what was tasteful mm-hmm. and that those were two separate spheres. And, uh, you know, it's like it, Celine Dion was popular, but good music was something more obscure that you had to seek out, you know, and that has completely broken down in the intervening years. Like, I think by now everybody recognizes that there are so many sub cultures of taste and that there is not like the notion of an alternative, for instance, which is a big thing in the 90s was actually a music category is so passe now. And he really gets at that. And, um, you know, and I, I'm fascinated by that. Like, I'm fascinated by how little self-definition, um, well, how we can still gain self-definition from our taste, but it doesn't, it's not as uh, clear-cut and as universal as it used to be. I think it used to be there was popular and, you know, alternative, and you could sort of define yourself as one or the other and really embrace it. And now it's like, well, we all recognize everybody loves everything. There's a subculture out there that loves it and mm-hmm. celebrates it in some capacity, and we can find those people on the internet and communicate with them. So the the question of taste, I actually... I think has pretty far reaching um, uh, ramifications nowadays. And so I really think this is a, a seminal essay for everybody to dive into. Huh. Sounds like, sounds yeah. amazing. And, and he's not the dude that was in the beach boys, correct? Not the same Carl Wilson. Uh, no, okay. no, that's Brian Wilson. But, right? Well, Carl Wilson was also beach boy. I think he's dead oh, though. Okay. Did he die? Um, for the listeners out there, the beach boys were a band. <laughs> <laughs> who were very popular that your parents listened to and then one dude went crazy and then and then now he plays at casinos around san diego yeah it's also you know tastes changed so much especially in music as skill like skill and popularity have less and less relationship so you know what i mean it, it used to be that 
Well, I remember back in the, the mid-90s, people would be like, well, Britney Spears sucks, but Christina Aguilera also sucks, but she kind of doesn't suck because she actually has a really good voice. You know what I mean? And those conversations <laughs> would happen, right. I think, much more than they even do now because there's so much mixing and synthesizing happening that I, I haven't heard anyone actually be like, wow, Katy Perry has a really great voice, you know, ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It exactly. almost doesn't matter, right? right. Like the question, the, the whole question of authenticity was, was something that I feel like my generation obsessed over, but we kind of were probably the last, like, I don't know if anybody cares. It, it's, you know, it's more about what you're producing and how your music makes mm -hmm. people feel. And, and the whole notion of like being honest or being real to your roots is like, uh, it's just a different question nowadays. Um, or you know, resistance, be, resistance yeah. to some, you know, political or sociological thing. Well, you, right. If you guys want to see a really cool documentary, um, and maybe you guys already seen it, I think it's been out for a little bit on like HBO and stuff. It's Sound City, the documentary that Dave Grohl, the Foo Fighters, did about this recording studio in LA where Nirvana recorded Nevermind, but before that, like Fleetwood Mac had recorded their albums there, and then like Ario Speedwagon, but then also, um, Tom Petty and all these punk bands. It's this shitty little studio in uh, in Van Nuys, which is the San Fernando Valley, that had this really distinctive sound. Like when, once you see this documentary and you hear the sounds that this particular studio made out of this particular mixing board, you will always know what was recorded at Sound City. And hmm. it's this fascinating story of this music studio, but it's also the story of how Pro Tools made a place like sound city completely obsolete obsolete because yeah because you could just create it you could hit the sound city plugin right. you can hit the sound on Pro Tools. exactly and right. how all the weird idiosyncrasies of this place how a drum reverberated in a particular room or how a guitar sounded through this this board is completely lost because it's been everything's been digitized um and and you know like neil young had recorded in the studio and and then They'd gone through this down period, and then Nirvana came and recorded, and Sound City became huge again. Rage Against the Machine came and recorded there. And then Pro Tools showed up, and everyone was like, well, I don't need this anymore. I don't need this authentic sound anymore when I can replicate it in my living room with absolutely no skill set whatsoever. Um, and so it's, it's sort of a fascinating comparison to what you're talking about in relationship to this essay about the, that search for authenticity and the replication of authenticity also. Yeah. Right. But I will say, you know, that we shouldn't make a blanket statement that authenticity is completely lost or, you know, that people aren't seeking that. It's just much less in the public discourse than I think it was when we were younger. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who are still, you know, grabbing around for authentic sounds and ideas get you and all you and posers fair, get off our lawn very, this is a very that's a, <clears throat> a small part of, of this essay or this book um he spends much more time on the sort of like bigger question of what is what like more of a question of popularity versus an unpopular and and he goes into he goes into the history of of popular music in america really well he dissects uh, but then he also does like he talks about there's this study recent study a sociological study where they asked people what um what they liked in paintings mm -hmm. um and you know overwhelmingly people like the color blue they like 
like certain animals. They like a house or whatever. So they made the perfect painting to appeal to like the most amount of Americans. And of course it's like this gaudy, awful <laughs> thing, you know, and it's sort of like the equivalent, but his point is, you know, and the point of the study and then Carl, Carl Wilson's point is like, you can't de- completely democratize art. You know, like if art, if the goal of art is to please the most amount of people, you will end up pleasing nobody ultimately. And so, like, you know, the I, the notion of like the artist having to push the culture, be in a conversation with the culture and push you pe- beyond your own taste a little bit until you get comfortable with it. Um, I, I find that fascinating. I mean, that's so much of like what I contend with, especially in the film industry, because the film world is so much about the bottom line, like needing to make money and needing to be popular. You know, nobody like an unpopular film doesn't get made nowadays. When we're living in an era where you you just can't raise millions of dollars required for production. Um, So this question of like, how do you contend with popular taste and what does, what is popular taste is um, actually, you know, incredibly essential for my future career. Well, you're fucked. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, I'll go next um, because I my revisit is something that is popular or is going to be popular. So as we already know from Todd's super exciting news about his book, um, it's new book season, and there's just all these huge new books everywhere. And I was in uh, Oregon last week, and I went to Powell's, of course. I was scoping out the new books, and I got – here, I'm going to show it to you guys, like Reading Rainbow. Um, I got David Mitchell's new book. The Bone Clocks. Oh, The Bone Clocks, yeah. So um, so if you guys don't know, David Mitchell is a really popular British writer. He wrote Cloud Atlas and the, what what's the swan one? The Black Swan, Black Swan Green, something like that. Yeah, Black Swan Green. Um, and many other books that have been really, um, really popular. But I've, I've only read Cloud Atlas, but... I know it's super popular and zeitgeisty, but I, I absolutely loved it. And a huge part of the reason that I loved it is I just read it without knowing anything about it. Um, and it has this really strange and complex structure that I loved. So I got the bone clocks under similar circumstances. And um, I've only read about 100 pages out of 600. But it is, it's really good. I 600? Oh, my God. He's, like, incapable of writing short books, huh? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So it starts out, I won't say too much about it, but um, it's just really fun to read books by someone who's playing with structure and reality um, without having any idea what the book is ultimately going to be about. Because (laughs) it's just, all right, I haven't been sincerely scared by a book in a long time, and I've been reading a lot of horror and kind of experiencing a lot of horror because I love it, but I'm so used to the format and the tropes that I'm ready to be frightened and I had no idea that this book would be even slightly creepy and it scared the shit out of me Um, oh cool yeah (laughs) because it starts as uh you know this girl it starts as a very realistic you know inside the mind of a 15 year old girl and she's you know tooling around her 15 year old girl problems boy problems and stuff and then she will just slide into these really scary daymares uh, or hear voices and the seamlessness with which between the regular story and the daymares is so slow that it just becomes very scary. Um, And he's very good at writing in a way that makes it scary because she doesn't realize that they are nightmares. Um, Hmm. 
and she's sliding into this other reality, I assume. I have no idea what's going on. But <laughs> but it's really it's really cool and I'm I'm excited about it. I'm sure the book will be super popular. I'm sure lots of people will hate it. Um, but I am enjoying the experience of reading of, about what I assume is some kind of alternate reality without having any idea if that's where it'll actually end up. So that's what I'm doing. Cool. Yeah. Have you guys read it seems like any of his books? No. I, I read Cloud Atlas and really liked it. And then I saw the movie and thought, oh, that's a shame. Yeah, I didn't watch it. <laughs> I mean, it's an, it, it was an impossible book to turn into a movie. Mm-hmm. It really was. Um, but he... Um, when I read um, um, Cloud Atlas, I too had no idea what I was getting into, and so when it starts shifting from Victorian England to the year thirty five hundred or whatever it is, and then there's the space aliens, I was like, "What the holy fuck is going on here?" And then when it all makes sense, um, I mean, that it, he's just he's a master of that stuff. I don't I don't understand how a brain thinks like that. Also, which is sort of compelling as a writer to be like, how does this dude even come up with this shit? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he's he's good. It's hard. I didn't read the other one, Black Swan Green, nor, nor do I know what it's about. And he has some other book about a Japanese woman that I almost bought also um, that looks good. And yeah, he's written a lot more than I was aware of, or at least his display at Powell's was very impressive. So... <laughs> Well, it seems like the the three of us are actually ruminating on a theme today about uh, popular things and popular culture. And so my book actually is something that uh, has been in the news a lot lately. Um, My book is Against Football by Steve Allman, um, which is his book about why he has stopped watching football. Um, It's one fan's reluctant manifesto. Um, and so this week that we're recording uh, this episode is the week that the video of Ray Rice punching his girlfriend uh, came out into the news and all of that horrible stuff. But it's been something I've been thinking about a lot um, subsequent to seeing this documentary um, on Frontline called League of Denial and then subsequently reading the book League of Denial, which basically um, goes into the fact that the National Football League is a criminal organization using young men as Soylent Green, um, (laughs) leaving them broken and bruised and at the point of death and incapable of having normal lives after playing the game. And it's been something I've been sort of battling with as a fan of the game, watching it and sort of reveling over these big hits people are taking and wanting my favorite team, the Oakland Raiders, to, you know, smack the shit out of somebody. And then seeing what the result of my fandom does which is leaves men with traumatic brain injuries or gives people the impetus to go kill themselves after playing football for three years because of whatever traumatic injury that they have and steve allman's book against football is sort of another another notch in this belt of damning evidence about why football like boxing in a way is really this you know, is a barbaric sport that has been hidden from us under the guise of entertainment for for many, many years, and how it's getting harder and harder and harder to, you know, want to put on the jerseys and on the Sundays and eat the the nachos and watch these young men kill themselves. Um, And it's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's an extended essay, basically, is what Steve's book is. 
Um, but he's also talking about these other excellent books like League of Denial um, by Mark Finerou Wada and his brother Steve Finerou. Um, and Richard Slotkin's Regeneration Through Violence, the Mythology of American Fo- of the American Frontier, and the Don DeLillo book, and all, all sorts of stuff. Um, so wait, but, is he saying know, it, basically that you should stop watching football if you care about the players at all? If you care about human beings at all. Jesus. Yeah. Um, that seems like a he, pretty, I mean, are, I mean, what are the chances that like even you are going to not watch football this season? <laughs> well, it's, it's somewhat slim. Because I still love to watch football, but like I was watching this this past Sunday, you know, I have the NFL Red Zone, and so I can watch all the games at one time. I mean, it's basically an ADD person's fantasy, and they kept showing these guys getting leveled, and I just kept thinking, oh, that's a brain injury, and that's a brain injury, and that's a brain injury. And then last night I was watching a game, and you know, they kept people getting people kept getting penalties for blows to the head, and you'd see these guys' heads whip and whip and whip you just yeah. think you know it doesn't matter how strong you are your brain is still this gentle little thing that's inside your head and it's being slammed against the corridors um but he uh steve in the preface of the book quotes this news article that he had um pinned to a corkboard in his office for years that he said he just thought was a funny thing um but it it sort of starts the thesis for this entire book and so it's a it's a passage from an article from a 2003 recap of a New England Patriots game. And it says, With 13 minutes and 50 seconds left in the game, running back Kevin Falk hauled in a 15-yard pass from Tom Brady, then got leveled by Miami safety Brock Marion, who forced a fumble and left Falk motionless on the ground. I was out cold. I wasn't out cold, but I was out, said Falk. Asked if he remembered lying on the ground, he said, No, I don't, so I must have been out. I knew that something was wrong with me. I knew that. Like, it wasn't normal. I didn't have that same normal feeling when I got up. And at the time, when Steve saw this in an article, he, he just thought, oh, that's a funny, you know, weird existential thought that this guy's having. But the fact of the matter is, this dude just sustained a brain injury. He got knocked out cold yeah. and had a concussion, continued playing football. Um, and, you know, Part of this also reaches back into my own life in that um, I briefly had a stepfather, <laughs> one of several, um, who had played professional football in the 1950s and had concussions then and then had was in a car accident 30 years later, got another concussion and basically lost his mind after that. Oof. Like he was never the same. And he had, you know, he had basically had a degenerative brain disease from playing football Christ. all those years. Um, so it's, it's, I don't know if I'll stop watching football. I probably won't because I, I do enjoy it. And it's, it's something that I, you know, it's a relaxation device, I suppose. But, um, I would never let my son play. Not that I have children. Um, like why would you put a child of 15 or 16 in a position where they'd get repeated blows to the head? Why you would you would never do that. Yeah. So it, it's it's a fascinating book against football by Steve Almond, um, but League of Denial is a more intricate look into how basically for the last forty five years the NFL has hidden um, all the information they had about concussions and the um, the mental and physical state of their former players, right. uh, and it's I mean it's it's horrible and awful. 
But I think, you know, if you're a fan of the game, you owe it to these guys that went out there and brained themselves for our enjoyment to, to learn the truth. What's funny, I was thinking so, of, I was thinking about this when we were in France. We went we were in the town of Arles, um, which is a town known for its Roman presence. It was a big Roman outpost in, in the south of France. And so they still have a coliseum there. And mm-hmm. we went and watched a bull races, bull, bull running, um, which they host every week or whatever. And, you know, we didn't really know what to expect, but it was a completely harmless version of bullfighting, basically, where they bring a bull out and, and you watch this animal chase people. And the guys have the, the, the bull will have like a ribbon with rings around its head. And the guys have little tools in their hands. And what they do is they try and entice the bull to chase them. And they try and get as close to the bull's head to get one of these rings or to cut the ribbon. And then they it's like a point system. It was all in French, so I didn't completely understand. But it was a harmless, fun game. But even that was a little, you know, there were times when like this bull comes out. Oh, that's simple French games. <laughs> well, but, you know, they're very, they're, they're very, they, they separate themselves from the Spanish bull fights where they actually, of course, kill the bull. Um, you know, and right. it, they're very proud of that, that it's a different tradition. And, you know, but it started a discussion between me and my wife about, like, bullfights and and what this means and 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 the spectacle culture of you know ancient ancient rome where they would bring in a bear and they would just torture a bear in front of you or whatever and like you know there's part of me that was bored frankly by the bullfight i did see or the bull racing i did see because it was so boring you know so tame and like i looked at it and i was like well these guys aren't really in danger the bull's not really in danger do i give a crap and, you know, like I do to a little to a certain extent, but there's always been this tradition of making a spectacle out of the dangerous or the risky or bodily harm. And it's it, I think it's it's easy to make the sort of one to one connection. Like we've always had our gladiatorial games. Football was just like that. But the truth is, it's not just like that because we are doing it on such a different scale now. And the mm-hmm. amount of money that's involved and when you get into a corporate mindset, like a you know 21st century corporate mindset i don't it's not the same thing anymore like the idea of you know a a city of a few thousand people gathering um the toughest dudes from their town to like do something physical against each other in a ring to watch is such a far cry from the nfl um which Mm -hmm. is a gigantic multi-billion dollar corporation who's you know, bottom line is always the best. That's always what they're interested in. And you just... A giant multi-billion dollar corporation that has non-profit status. Really? Oh, see, the I United didn't realize States. that. Yes. Yeah, see, that shit's yeah. fucked up. And I think we're on a different level. And I think that... <laughs> yes, I think it's it really is. important to, you know... I mean, I've always said, like... Well, one thing, we get rid of the helmets and all the padding. Like, just get rid of all of it. Don't, like, make the people have to actually hit each other. Because number one... Like, that will just immediately, everybody will defend themselves better and not throw their heads in. Like, the second we started uh, I don't putting know. more have padding watched, on. But, like, Australian football, Australian they don't have football? the same they don't have the same head injuries that we do. NFL's the worst head Yeah, but people get their ears ripped off and shit. Fine. That's great, though. But, I mean, that's so much better. Like, because then you know what you're getting into. Like, if you if you put a helmet on and, like, like I grew up, you know, always being not told but sort of assuming that football was okay like that those players Mm -hmm. were taking those hits and that's like when you're talking about watching these hits now knowing what's actually going on it's horrifying and as Mm -hmm. a kid like i was told well they're wearing their pads they're fine it's all good but it's not like people are 
dying, just slowly dying over years of, you know, traumatic brain injury. And I think the more we recognize that and the more we strip away the padding and say, here's what's actually happening, the less people will want to do it, first of all. And then second of all, the less we want to watch it if it's if it's actually getting vicious and real. I don't know. I, I think that there's a there's a way to tone it down and keep the, the, the idea of the sport, which is I think there is well, a tradition in human cultures of, you know, spectacle Steve, of violence. And I think that Steve actually poses some ideas. Steve poses some ideas of how to fix the game, as it were, um, in the book. But his are more, you know, widespread, um, you know, institute parental discretion for the students before um, football games, enforce a weight limit on players or teams. These are about high school kids. Um, create a helmet that records every sub-concussive hit. Um, hmm. require the allocation of public funds for sports facilities be approved by public referendum. I mean, Steve also is a, you know, he's approaching this at a, from a super liberal point of view. Um, you know, and I, I think he's also being provocative. Well, but the super liberal point of view is also, why not, you know, fix the economic disparity that makes a, ch- a playing football the only chance that some kids have at a, a you well, know, successful Well, it's life. not just football. I mean, it's football, <laughs> it's it's basketball, it's baseball, it's it's any it's any sport. And, you know, that that's right. something that he talks about also. But those sports book. don't have the sort of, you know, meat grinder. No. That that football becomes, you know, and and if you're a big kid and football becomes your ticket out, you're going to you're going to pursue it against the odds and against your own head. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's Literally. a good point. So, I, I, you know, I think it's it's a complex question, but I think you also look at, I mean, the, the compare contrast to what you just said, Ryder, is the evolution of fandom in boxing away from boxing mm-hmm. and towards MMA, which is a far more brutal sport um, where, you know, you get a person on the ground, you punch their fucking face in. Um, What's been happening with that? I mean, are there as many injuries or is it as traumatic? I oh, honestly don't in know. In MMA? I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm, MMA is brutal, terrifying, yeah, it's brutal, and people are. Well, I hate watching it, but I mean, is it actually statistically? Do, I mean, do people end up hurting themselves as much or more than like boxing? Because boxing, it's just hitting each other in the head. Well, and the, whereas and the MMA body. is like there's lots of head twists and body. and body and like arm bolt holds, and yeah. you know, it's it becomes almost more humane in being more extreme. Some way, I don't know. I, I don't mean, know about that. I mean, I'm not well, sure. I, 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 You're still hitting each still other in the head. Hitting each other in the head, and, and you know, there's. There's also kicking. I remember there was a, a match earlier in the year where a guy blocked a kick and his legs, his legs snapped in half, you know, and you don't see that in boxing. Oh. Um, so, But better your legs snapping in half than just sitting there getting brain injuries. Like, like the point of boxing is to limit it to your head. Well, no, it's the head and the body. That is the rules know? of boxing. Yeah, but so many of the rules of boxing are, are, are just the point of boxing is how many hits can I sustain to my head without a helmet? Yeah. Like, that's crazy. It's a – it's – if you just look at it with any sense of human logic, a sport where people punch each other in the face is absurd. <laughs> it's absolutely absurd. <sighs> wow. Well, guys, that is your popularity take from the three of us <laughs> yes, today. Yes, I think it is. Which I think leads us... Wow, we have a lot of opinions on popular things. I think that it naturally leads us into a ruminative book on death. <laughs> <laughs> And clocks. And clocks, exactly. Nothing more popular than clocks. Clocks and death. So, all right, stick around for when we come back and we'll talk about Paul Harding's novel, Tinkers.
Welcome back to Literary Disco. So today we're going to take up a book that came to me just kind of randomly. Um, it was a friend of a friend who had actually, I think, gone to college with Paul Harding, the author of this book. And he just said, you should read this book. And I looked at it and bought it and recommended that we read it for Literary Disco. And I'm really glad I did. Paul Harding, he actually won the Pulitzer Prize for this novel, Tinkers. He himself was a drummer in a band called Cold Water Flat from 1990 to 96. He's taught at Harvard. He's taught at um, the MFA program and the Iowa Writers Workshop. So he's clearly a well-connected and uh, seasoned writer, even though this was his first book. And um, Well, think... and it should be noted that his well-connections and all that didn't help him because he couldn't sell the book. Is that true? You know, oh, yeah. See, you probably know more yeah, than I Yeah, I mean... Do. It, it came out on Bellevue Literary Press, hmm. which I challenge you to go find <laughs> any other books you've ever owned. Does that yeah, mean it was he, self-published? or No, no, no. It, it, Bellevue Literary Press is a tiny press, really small press. Um, and he was rejected all around New York for this book. And then Bellevue that Literary Press published it. They gave him the, the huge advance of 1000 American dollars. Um, I mean, it, it's sort of an amazing story because what you mentioned is his connections. I mean, one of his connections is Marilyn Robinson was his yeah. teacher and his friend. Right. And he teaches at the University of Iowa, and he still couldn't get a major press to buy this book. Um, wow, that is so far from what I assumed. <laughs> that is crazy. No. It, it was actually a, a bit of a sensation. So when the book came out in 2009, it was really championed by uh, independent booksellers around the country. And it became a big hit in the independent world. It's, it, I, I remember reading a New York Times article about it where it sold something like five or six or 7,000 books or something before it won the Pulitzer Prize, which for a tiny little indie press, it may as well be a million Um you know, it's it's just a, a huge number for a, a small book like this. And then, of course, after winning, winning the Pulitzer, it was, you know, it was huge, a big bestseller. And, you know, you could buy it at Costco. But he, you know, he he, he was an obsc absolute obscurity. These uh, independent presses picked him up and really championed the book. The New York Times never reviewed the book. I don't think the L.A. Times reviewed the book. Um, but from word of mouth through these stores, it became... You know, it, 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 it's in essence, if the small indie band from your neighborhood scored a number one hit, that's what Tinkers became. Right. Well, that's great. And I kind of feel deservedly so. Um, I really, really like this book. Todd, you mentioned that it made you cry in bed. Oh, my God. So you, do you want to start us off with uh, your thoughts? Um. You know, there's not a lot of books like this that I think a lot of people read. It is a plotless meditative book about a man laying in bed dying yeah thinking about his life and time is folding and unfolding on him as he lays there dying and he's remembering his own life and then the book is interspersed also with a separate narrative of his father's life his father who was an epileptic and eventually ran away from the family an um, epileptic tinker an epileptic tinker um yeah. And, you know, when I first started to read it, I was like, oh, man, I don't, like, I don't need to be depressed. I got enough anxiety in my life right now that I don't need to 
be worrying about death. And then, like, one page in, oh, it was over for me. <laughs> See, that's funny. I actually found the book kind of soothing in a way. I mean, it was certainly a um, a sad vision that it opens with because it opens with the character of George in his on his deathbed, you know, sort of reflecting on his deathbed. But reflecting amidst the mental confusion of being about to right. die. So there's lots of, you know, sort of hallucinatory images and... I don't know. It really, I loved it, and 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 I found the book ultimately very um, comforting in a weird way. Um, but maybe, you know, what it reminded me so much of, Ryder. Hmm. Um, it reminded me so much of Stoner. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh my God. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's definitely um, in the Stoner tradition. That's great. I, I mean, had it's, not thought it's, of it's that. interesting yes. because yeah. So if you guys have, and by the way, Stoner is so popular now. It's like Facebook's using it as this little icon for all kinds of book things for me now. <laughs> but um, I feel like now more people know about Stoner than about this book, which is weird because that had gone into obscurity. But if you like Stoner, you will love this book. I mean. The only it's difference really is that Stoner is linear, you know, and it's just a, a really <laughs> depressing march towards death. Whereas this begins with death and then jumps around. So <laughs> right. like, I also it's would a say more fun. You know what this this also <laughs> reminded me of a little bit is train dreams. So it's sort of like Stoner yes. meets train yeah. dreams. <laughs> Um, because this, this, uh, stoner was very much like a social, you know, a book about a college town or a small, smaller town. Whereas this is more wildernessy at times, more nature based. Yeah. It's a rural novel. Rural, it really yeah. is. And, and, and so it takes place, um, the point of his death is in what year does he actually die in this book? It's, um, in the nineties, isn't it? I would assume so since he was born in the twenties. Yeah, um, but it it takes place mostly in the the nineteen forties in his memory of his father um, and his childhood. But he, I I was fascinated by something which is sort of silly because of course it's true, but how these rural people at the you know turn of the century when so George's father Howard is uh, the the dual narrator in essence. He's ruminating on his life, and he's he's he goes out and he sells things from a from a pushcart, basically. Um, but his ruminations on his own existence are so well thought out, and and so complex, and so troubling. And at first, I thought, did people think like that living in the woods in those days? You know, which is really sort of a twenty first century first world elitism on my part that yeah. people that don't have. $40,000 in student loan debt didn't have complex, intricate thoughts about the sense of <laughs> that's humanity. A, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, hit Howard's ruminations on his epilepsy and what it felt to go into um, a seizure and then how it felt to be a part of the world were just so thoughtful and different than everything i had read previously about this sort of person and so mm -hmm. i i thought a little bit about train dreams also while reading this but i i more thought about faulkner when i was reading of course, it yeah. Um, yeah. And, and about the secret lives of these people that you pass by on the in this in this rural landscape or the the people that you never pay any attention to in the houses next door to you right the mental um, life of those people right right the mental life of, of perfect strangers yeah well and I, so another thing that was very Faulknerian about this book that me, that really took me into loving it because I was I was liking it but you know the whole 
we've talked about this before pretty recently, the whole, like, poverty, nostalgia feeling. Like, I don't instantaneously buy it. I'm not like, oh, my gosh, impoverished people having deep thoughts. This is going to be great. <laughs> um, but, uh, the, you know, More I like it to cake. a degree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, that is when we talked about it. But um, I liked it to a degree, but then I really started to like the book when the perspective started shifting so wildly and the tones, which was very Faulkner. So there's a point. So obviously he's dying. So he's shifting between memory and real time and conversations and stuff. And then there's this very sudden shift about 50 pages in. This is a book. It is a book I found in a box. I found the box in the attic. The box was in the attic under the eaves. And it goes on and on, and you don't know who's speaking or why or what point in time we are. And those kind of um, devices were just, they were really intriguing because you've got the, the content, and then you've got the that jarring feeling that I so long for in fiction where a writer actually captures what it's like to think and to mm-hmm. move between memory and time and observation and... You know, oh god, it yeah. was. I loved any time there was an abrupt shift. Yeah, well, there's that a lot of really yeah. There's excited. a there, there, one of my favorite sections is there's a there's a section that's when when I feel like the book really picked up, which is right around page 100. Because I agree with you, it's, it's it was a little hard to get into at first, even even though I do tend to like the poor impoverished <laughs> people Poverty in the countryside. Uh, but no, it's strong. It's my thing. Love. No, um, I got into it a lot when. Uh, the you know the sort of family story of, of mm-hmm. George as a kid, and then Howard. So you've introduced Howard and George separately as characters, and then you sort of start to see their family life. And actually, it even starts to include their mother as a kind of narrator figure too. Right. But the the book at that point did some great devices. We've talked about before how much I love italics, and Todd, you hate them, I know. But like, <laughs> uh, you know, it was so Faulknerian that in the middle of a story that's third person of Howard and George and Kathleen, the mom, it would suddenly jump into italicized first person for what George was going through. And mm-hmm. then you're like, Oh my God, like he's, that's right. He's back on his deathbed at the beginning of this book, uh, having these memories pass by him as sort of like, um, it was almost like we were reading a passive narrator, which is kind of mm-hmm. an impossible term, but it was like, he was, having these hallucinations or these memories wash over him and then he would intrude as a self to say like I remember feeling this or da 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 and then the story would right. continue and it's like something like that A is com- so Faulknerian and awesome you know like literally down to like adjusting to italics and then going back to normal it's such a Faulkner thing but then B is also just something only books can do you know like if this mm-hmm. were a movie You'd have to be jumping from like flashback to like him on a bed, and it just would feel cheesy and more um, effortful. Whereas this is just effortless. It's like this blending. I mean, that that and was sort the of... challenge they had in making the English Patient. You know. That, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I never read patient. that or seen the movie, so I, I'm I'm not an English. It's a person. pretty hallucinatory book, and yeah. to make it into a film, and I I love the book and I like the film, um, but that that was the challenge. It's about right. a man laying on a bed thinking about how he got to that bed basically um and yeah it, it, and it's, I, it's a tough shift i i misspoke before too because what what you're saying is right writer in that what's cool about the book is that it feels like a puzzle right like it's being told out of order but it is actually being told in the order of his mind going over these things as he is dying right. and right. there's a great description of that 
Um, it's too long to read the whole thing, but um, uh, it didn't, of course, there's this counting down to his death. So this is on page 64. 84 hours before he died, George thought, because they're like tiles loose in a frame with just mm, enough space yes. so they can all keep yeah. moving around, even if it's only a few at a time and in one place. So he's talking about, you know, his experiences being tiles and there's very little space left. Oh, that and passage is says, incredible. It's, yeah. it's amazing. And it talks about, and the very end of it, I was just, I like had to stop reading for a while because I just wanted to think about it. So oh, this is one, this sentence is like three pages long. So it's hard <laughs> to find it. <laughs> there's a couple of those. But, um, there will be the stopped pattern, the final array, but not even that, because that final finitude will itself be a bit of scrolling, a pearlescent clump of tiles, which will generally stay together but move about within another hole and be mingled within endless ways of other people's memories so that I will remain a set of impressions, porous mm-hmm. and open to combination, blah, 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 blah. Um, <laughs> Little well, well, genius, by the way. Yeah, I just exactly. oh, this Brilliant. is the part that I just absolutely loved. I will be no more than the smoky arrangement of a set of rumors, and to their great grandchildren, I will be no more than a tint of some obscure color. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That, that that's, just killed me. Yeah, that's, that's sort of the which I realized the book, right? Like, yeah, yeah. And that was the point um, at which I realized oh, I'm I'm going to be crying at right. some point <laughs> very very soon. And there's there's this. There's another great description, sort of similarly, on page 157 at the beginning of, of the fourth section of the book, where he describes basically what it's like to be laying in a room surrounded by people waiting for you to die again. Yeah. And he says, during the days, George was aware of a large group of people murmuring and flowing in and out of the room as if on tides. <laughs> and if you've ever, you know, basically sat and waited for someone to die, um, there's a very strange rhythm to it because... And I, and I hope none of you ever have to do it. But, um, you know, you're there with your family and maybe friends and people are coming and going. Right. And, and it always feels like um, somebody should be there by the bedside. Right. But then you all have exactly. to eat meals and also have to deal with each other in this house right. or wherever you're at. So it's this it's a weird. Yeah, it, it's it, actually it's I mean, most... it can be very peaceful, like and mm-hmm. sort of like I, when, when my family did that for my grandfather was actually a it brought us together, you know, it was a really kind of wonderful thing. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. it is weird. Cause somebody's there in the middle of the night, someone's there reading, someone's playing guitar, someone's talking, you know, everyone has their own right. approach. And, and yeah. you're, you know, the elephants in the room with you right. and that what person knows that they're dying, you know, and that just the, the description of him being aware of a murmuring and flowing. I mean, that's what it's like. You, you can totally just see it. You know, the, yeah. the surrounding of the, the, spokes of your life your sister your brother your children your wife all that standing around you and then all of your stuff around you too right just i mean it's a heartbreaking description of something i think a lot of us end up going through obviously because we all die um but something that you know we won't get to elucidate in our own final moments um Mm -hmm. it it, it's gonna stick with me for a lot of reasons but the sense of um, acceptance of death, not fighting against it, but accepting what's next, I think is a really powerful emotion that George has. Yeah. I was just going to say, I was so unsurprised that Marilyn Robinson loves this book. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? All right. Yes. Like, this is such a Marilyn Robinson book. I mean, it also reminded me of Gilead, of course. And now that I know she was his teacher... 
you know, it's all it's all coming together. The tiles are locking together in my brain. Okay, Ryder, what were you going to say? I was going to I was going to add the um a, like another major Faulkner th- connection is the time factor. Like, you know, right. cuz of course Sound and the Fury has the whole Quentin obsessed with his watch. I mean, there's a whole time thing I, I think i wrote an essay in college on you know the use of time and the sound of the fury because that's one of those classic like oh, wow. essay wow. subjects subject. because it, you know it's like <laughs> if if i remember correctly it's like they're all like ones in past tense like jason's in present tense like mm-hmm. benji of course is jumping from time to time so you have to keep track of that and then quentin's obsessed with the clog so there was a whole time thing and then, then this book has it overtly with the the fact that he's a tinkerer, uh, George was a tinkerer who um, fixed clocks. So it keeps returning to histories of various clocks and clock systems. And so mm-hmm. it gets at this, you know, you, you're kind of um, interrupted. The narrative gets interrupted by these excerpts from historical books or, you know, they're all kind of made up. And one of them is a, is in a completely impossible book. As far as I can tell, it's, it's a book that Howard wrote or an mm-hmm. excerpt that Howard wrote about how to make nests for birds out of tinker parts. Um, but there are beautiful little passages that kind of, you know, it took me a while to get used to them. I didn't like them at first because I was like, oh, I have to figure out what this is about or what this means. But the truth is, this book is better if you just read through it and not, don't like stop and try and parse everything apart. But anyway, the time theme is really cool. And um, one of my favorite uses of it was this section where he he, he he brings the time, um, all the time discussion into the best description of denial I've ever seen, like denial within a family. <laughs> it's on page 69. It's when he's, Howard has had an epileptic fit and his wife Kathleen is basically just in complete denial of it. She's hiding this fact from their children. And so he comes home four hours late for dinner and um, so on page 69 he describes these four hours these missing four hours as time taken away Kathleen never acted as if anything were wrong she ignored the four hour gap during which she had made her litter sit before their plates and wait for Howard that's the kids waiting for dinner they waited four hours before they ate when he came into the driveway slumped in the cart Prince Edward that's the horse pulling slow but certain and staggered through the door she took up with the evening again as if it were five in the afternoon as if she had just slid the five o'clock hour to the nine o'clock one or took the four hours between them and banished them or tyrannized herself and her children into a type of abatement leaving each of them and herself with a burden of four extra hours that each would have to juggle and mind for the rest of their lives first as a single strange indigestible puzzlement and then later as a prelude to the night nearly a year later when she and the children again sat in front of full plates of cold food waiting for howard waiting for the sounds of the cart and the mule and the jangling tack and that time he never came back at all i just love this idea of like those four hours as a physical presence that everybody feels and then has to contend with it's like you know it's the ultimate uh, like what postmodernists would call present absence you know and and it's such a great description of denial and and then just the way that he plays with those those concepts and systems throughout this book and like you know using these clocks as metaphors for how humans organize nature and contend with issues of time and and family and memory and you know it's it's a really brilliant book i I feel like i could read it again and and get a lot out of it even right now like even though i just finished it i think it's worth a reread i think this is a double reader i think so too because it's short enough right yeah it's only 190 pages the the mother character specifically Mm. is such a fascinating character kathleen you know we have this vision of the 
the caring, doting mother. And at first we get this vision of her, you know, helping Howard through his seizure, shoving a piece of wood in his mouth so he doesn't bite off his tongue right. or swallow his tongue. And by the way, can you actually swallow your tongue? Like, is that something that is really true? I don't believe no. that's true. No, it's not really. I okay. mean, it, 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 but it used to be believed. And I think it has okay. happened, but a really extreme case. I think you can choke on your tongue. You can choke on your tongue by biting it off or something. But at any rate, so we first get her as this person who's, you know, seemingly somewhat loving. And then we get her perspective. And it turns out she not only hates being a mother, Mm -hmm. she hates being a wife. Mm -hmm. She hates every single thing about her life that she has. And it works in such polar opposite to this kind of little house on the prairie vision i have of right. people in this time <laughs> oh, man. and you find out oh right yeah she's just like any other human being right. who's dissatisfied with their existence uh, well, being a but woman she's got back four then kids was and fucking a horrible husband. though too yes. like specifically women in a sort of frontier farm life like that is right. shit that Shitty. is just yeah. the shit of the shit work-wise oh Plus, she has a mentally disabled child and an epileptic husband who doesn't make enough right. money. Like, oh, I mean, but she's clinically Let's just depressed. Say it's, <laughs> yes, it's more fun to be the hermit with the rotten tooth. Than yes, it is her. that is a very. I, I totally <laughs> thought that. Like, all things being equal, there's this great hermit that Howard goes out and gives supplies to. That dude had a much better life than, than Kathleen did. Yes, <laughs> he's buddies with Nathaniel Hawthorne. But do you yeah. guys remember oh, God, there, was, so there cool. was a PBS show years ago where they actually took people and had them live on the frontier and they had to live authentically? Yes. Do you remember this? And they had yeah, to I actually divide the labor up between the men and the women and the children according to the traditions of the 18th century. Like, that was part of the whole thing. Or 19th century. 18th, 19th century. Anyway. They were lived in Nebraska, I think, as if it was a frontier house, like a Willa Cather sort of situation. And the women were miserable, like all the yes. contemporary American <laughs> women who had to live with all the female chores from the time were so miserable. And all the guys were like, I feel like I got back in touch with my manhood. I've been chopping wood and <laughs> hunting animals. I feel great. And all the women were like, I've been killing rats and cooking food. This is shit. Like, this is the worst life. Like domestic, the distribution of labor was so much worse for women than men. Uh, it was it was mm-hmm. an interesting interesting social experiment, and I think that this book references the same sort of disparity between the genders. Can I can I tell you guys the moment though that I absolutely sobbed in my bed and hugged my sleeping wife? Please do. Yes. Um, and then also uh, kissed my cocker spaniel scout, and then I have a, a aging and infirmed cocker spaniel named Minnie, and I had to go get off the bed and hug and kiss her. Um, I might cry reading it. Page 175. The wife, uh, George's wife, comes out to see him when he's basically on his deathbed. And she says to him, haven't we had a wonderful life together? Oh, (laughs) just those words. I was a fucking mess. Just tears. Tears. Tears, I tell you. And I love ah. it. Like, that's a, a great example. I mean, because there is a lot of stylization in this book in terms of the prose on the Crying page. again. Look, look, tears you are. on my fingers. Absolutely cried. This paragraph is so great because it's all blended together, right? You, like, you don't know what's dialogue mm-hmm. and what's not, what's said aloud, right. what's in George's head. So it's that, that... I love that stuff, you know? I mean, obviously Faulkner did a lot of that, but I love, um, you know, Cormac McCarthy does this stuff. Like, the taking away of quotation marks, the blending, you know, it, I know a lot of people find that difficult to read or pretentious or mannered in a way, but I, 
I still love all that stuff because I feel like this is a perfect description. You feel like you're in George's head, right? Waking up, confused about where you are, and you know, and then you have like a wonderful line like that, like, "Haven't we had a wonderful life together?" It's in the middle of a paragraph. It's mm-hmm. not in quotation marks. Uh, can you imagine if you were reading like? it put in a sort of more traditional book form. I feel like that would be, oh, it could almost be a cheesy line of dialogue, you know, mm-hmm. but the way it's structured and the way that um, he, you know, just formatted the prose on the page. It makes a so big difference. Per- it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And it makes it this like sparkling gem that you just, it seizes your heart while you're reading it. And I love, I love when that's well done. And, and I feel like this book is such a good example of that, that it's really hard to pull off. Um, well, you know so what I was good. actually thinking about reading that with this um, with this form is um, remember earlier this year we read the the Willie Vlotten book, which we enjoyed. Yeah, um, the free, the free. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took some narrative chances, but not all of them worked, and the story was was okay, but we didn't love it. It was good. Yeah. But here, Paul Harding takes a lot of similar narrative chances, and they all work. Yep. And what could be sentimental. Um, or what could be, um, you know, just morose right. or or boring, divisive <laughs> or boring, you know, feels like the entrance into a human life. You put quotation marks in this story and all of a sudden it feels like it's being written. Right. Without the quotation marks in the story, you feel like you are getting entrance into the subconscious mind of a person. Right. And, and that's the why you, you don't use quotation marks in a book like this. Right. If right. you can make, it, if you're so fucking talented that you can make it work, do it. This is the reason why. <laughs> right. Well, so Julia was saying not, that there's a you know, who knows? Um, there's a sequel to this book, which now I'm really excited. actually Todd said that I don't oh, know anything about this. It? Todd was saying, yeah, that? there's a sequel that came out. Okay. There's a sequel that came out in 2013 called Enon. All right, I'm totally um, gonna go find this. Or Elon, which is the name of the city that this takes place, and it picks up the story of um, the Crosby family. I. Uh, was actually unaware of this book uh, until I finished reading this and had to then go through a forensic examination of Paul Harding's life. <laughs> it's Enon. 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 And uh, I, I don't know if Enon was a big hit because you'd think I would have heard of it if it had been. Right. Um, but it came out in 2013. Um, we'll, we'll see what Amazon says. Hold on one moment. Um, Oh, it's got a very pretty cover. So before this book actually came out, um, he had already signed a two-book deal with Random House um, for his next two books. Um, but I don't know. I have no idea if this was a hit or not. Well, we'll we'll find out and we'll let you all know at some point if this book yeah. was a hit. <laughs> wow. Well, Tinkers was a hit with us, and you guys should read it. Short yes, Short-time absolutely. investment. Big emotional investment. Yeah. Right, Todd? Yes. Yes. Are you okay, crying. Yeah. I, I'm still feeling a little. I'm feeling a little. See, I mean, it's a very emotional time for me right now. In that, I've only been <laughs> awake for two hours. But yeah, it's an emotional time of day. It's emotional. <laughs> yeah, it's an emotional time of day. But you know, when you feel something, you feel something, and that. Yeah, you know. As you guys both know, you're married now, and the natural thing to do when you're married is to imagine when the other person is going to die. Um, who's going to be the one that's left? And then you read a scene like that, and you know, 
you're crying in your bed while ESPN is on television. Your sleeping dogs are next to you, and your wife is like, "What the? What's going on? Why are you hugging me? <laughs> Get away from me! What are you doing? Well, it's four o'clock in the morning. We had a good life together. Yes, it's still going on. Honey, I'm trying to sleep. Honey, don't you love this life? Honey. <laughs> Come on, uh, say it yeah, again, but without but, quotation marks this time. Yeah. <laughs> but I think um, I think the the nice thing about Tinkers too is that you don't need to be a middle aged person to enjoy this book because it's also a coming of age story, um, yeah. and it's strong male characters, strong female characters, strong hobo characters. Yes, <laughs> that's not something you see in every book. <laughs> <laughs> All right. A good strong hobo. hobo no, he's a hermit, not a hobo. Let's just be clarify. Hobo well, Johnny yeah. is from. <laughs> Yeah, the Hardy Boys. Do it. And He's this is definitely a do it, writer. Do it. Do it. Do it, writer. <laughs> no, I can't do even it. remember how. Do it. I, I, it's inspiration has to strike. Do it, writer. I don't know what to say. For... I cried on the air. Do it, writer. <laughs> I, I honestly can't remember what Hobo Johnny sounds like. What did he sound like? I just came like out. A... <laughs> That's it. Was too that old. it? Too Whoa. old. I don't remember. Yeah, you, he has to be a little more, more wily menacing. and a little. More menacing, more pederasty, and maybe slightly drunk. Uh, no, yeah, the hermit in this book sounds more, I, I feel like he's more peaceful. And he was friends with Nathaniel Hawthorne, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, he was, a, he was 400 years old or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so work on your 400-year-old hermit voice, Great. and uh, for the next episode, we'll, we'll lead off with that. So that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we will read Excavation, a memoir by Wendy Ortiz. Literary Disco is edited, produced, and saved every week by Tucker Ives. You can follow us on Twitter at Literary Disco and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco. Thanks for listening.